So I'm going to take this opportunity. It would be remiss of me not to plug TLS Marketing. They have been such a vital resource for split tails in creating not only this podcast, but the website that we have, as well as the journal that is now on sale. They're not just about strategies. They're about storytelling that resonates and connects. Imagine marketing that's like your favorite podcast, engaging, memorable, and shareworthy. That's what TLS does. They craft campaigns that capture the essence of your brand and speak directly to your audience, turning casual browsers into loyal customers. Check them out at tlsmarketing.com.au. Split Tales is intended for a mature audience. Episodes discuss topics that can be disturbing, including graphic depictions of sexual violence, including emotional, physical and sexual violence, discussions of mental health, addiction and suicide. There is also coarse language. In some episodes, names and identifying details have been changed to protect the privacy of individuals. I am not a therapist, doctor or lawyer, and opinions expressed from guests on the show are their own, and they don't necessarily represent my or the views of Split Tales. Welcome back to Split Tales. This is our second episode of Hannah's Tale Postmortem, or as I'd like to call it, our reflective pit stop. In this episode, we're unwrapping the insights from our previous episode of Hannah's Tale. If you've just stumbled upon this episode, here's a friendly nudge. Press pause, journey back to episode one. Hannah's Tale sets the stage for this one. And to get a full richness of our discussion, you'll want to actually listen to her tale first. You're sick of my madness. Don't you tell me what I'm supposed to do. You're better off without me. While Google searches for the word divorce, search to their highest point in 12 months. There are over one million single parent families in Australia and four out of five of those households are headed by a female. I know what I'm supposed to do. As we move forward, in Hannah's tale, we reference she, her pronouns as the leading character in her own tale and he, him for the antagonist references, reflecting the specific nuances of her journey. And our conversation respects this narrative choice, not as a generalisation, but as a focused lens on Hannah's reality. In future episodes, we'll embrace stories across the gender spectrum, delving into male and intersex experiences, ensuring no chapter goes untold. We understand the protagonists and antagonists can be anyone. They are interchangeable, transcending gender and other identifiers. But today we're focusing on information specifically relevant to Hannah's experience with the knowledge that abuse knows no gender. So as we navigate Hannah's tale postmortem, we ask for your openness and to appreciate this choice. It's not about exclusion, but rather about aligning our language with the context at hand respecting Hannah's story. This episode is our postmortem, our chance to discuss and dissect the profound learnings from Hannah's experience. And to aid us, we've summoned a trinity of experts. Jacinta Black, a counsellor, Amber Simpson, a financial planner, and Desley Dunn, a lawyer. Together they form the trinity of separation support, mind, financial and legal the pillars that can uphold us when we tread the murky waters of separation. So these are the voices that you'll be hearing this episode, and I'll link all of their socials and their contact details in our show notes. 
My name is Jacinta. I have a diploma in counselling and I have several years' experience supporting counselling and advocating in the DV space. Hi, my name's Amber Simpson. I have a master's degree in financial planning and I'm also a certified financial planner. Hi, I'm Desley Dunn and I'm the principal of Dunlight Legal. Hannah's experience is both common and unique to her. She battled with depression, alcoholism and a suicide attempt. And although we won't be delving deeply into these topics in this episode, if you are experiencing any of these battles or know someone that is, please, please, please know that you're not alone and there is help out there. You are worthy and there is support. I'll be linking resources in our show notes. The topics we will be tackling in this episode are those underlying behaviours and the challenges that Hannah battled in her tale that ultimately led to her dark times. And ultimately, it's these that we want to bring light to so that others can learn more about what she overcame and possibly how you can if you're battling them yourself. The underlying issues of sexual coercion, financial abuse and co-parenting with child support challenges. We'll round this episode out with some general insights from the experts for those who might be experiencing domestic issues and want to know more about how they can help themselves. Jacinta and I met at a local place that does these amazing brisket baskets and beer. So apologies in advance that some sections of Jacinta's audio can be a bit choppy because we weren't the only ones chatting. The audio has been cleaned up, but I have learned a very valuable lesson about recording in public bars. But the reason that I wanted to capture it is that Jacinta just so articulately explained so many concepts and I thought it was really important that we capture that for our listeners verbatim as I didn't want it to be overscripted. So with Hannah's episode, it was so relatable to so many experiences that I've heard Um, and with my own lived experience as well. The financial abuse, the coercive control, the emotional abuse, it's it is so relatable and I, um, again, want to commend Hannah on, on sharing her story because I can imagine a lot of other women in her situation will be able to relate and feel seen in that space, which is so important. We, we do need to create this of, of people who have got those, um, those shared experiences and just not feel so alone yeah. in what's going on. So whilst when Hannah was going through her situation, that would have felt so extremely isolating for her. It absolutely would have, as it would with any any person in that situation. Um, It's really lovely to hear that she is able to so articulately open up about her situation, about what she experienced, and how all of those levels of abuse that she did experience over time have both impacted her, but also empowered her Desley had some really profound takeaways from Hannah's tale as well. Honestly, it was really triggering for me to listen to. I, like, despite knowing about this podcast and knowing it was happening, um, and I guess being involved in the background of it, I was like, it will be fine. And then when I started hearing some of the things that Hannah went through, I was just like, my heart's starting to race. I'm getting a heart and I feel like just upset. 
so much of it. Like it was, it's also common the fact that I think a lot of people don't realize like that they're being love bombed or that there's going to be control exerted. And for me, being a child who, a child of a domestic violence relationship, it's always really harrowing to hear that other children are caught up in the middle of it and that parties stay in it and deal with these horrible behaviours for the sake of the children. But coming out the other side of it, I'm like, it's not healthy for a child to learn that that behaviour is right or okay. And this is Amber's takeaway from Hannah's tale. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, rebuild and recover, and it may take time. And just give yourself permission to take time. Everyone's journey is different. Each of our experts have shared what their takeaways from Hannah's tale were. So let's now delve into a little bit more granular topic. Jacinta's going to take us through what her insights and thoughts are on the dynamics of manipulation. She touches on acceptance, understanding the complexities of love and trauma within an abusive dynamic. Um, with, with a lot of what Hannah was talking about, there was a lot of that coercive control and that subtle, we, we call it the um, insidious abuse. It's those subtle little things that start very early on in the relationship that they're Red flags are so small that you they're easily missed. And a lot of the times these people are really charming. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there that a narcissistic abuser doesn't really realise that what they're doing is abuse. They may not allow themselves to admit within themselves that what they're doing is abuse, but they know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. And at the end of the day, it's power and control. I can't say he absolutely was or he absolutely wasn't. There is no absolutions in this. However, in my experience, most of the time, they do know what they're doing. And that is not a discredit to Hannah. She did sound like she has done a lot of work and gained a lot of knowledge. And I really commend her for not only sharing her experience, but for getting out of that situation and acknowledging that what what she did experience was domestic violence. But she did um, say quite often that she didn't, like he didn't realise what he was doing. I can't say whether or not that's true, but I would be very surprised if he didn't know at least to some extent what he was doing. A little while ago, it was actually a documentary and I wish I could remember the, the name, but it was so fascinating watching this woman. She was a new counsellor that started Adam Man's Behaviour Change Program. And she went in and she was thinking, these, these guys, they, like, I can help these guys change. I can show them the woman's experience and I can help these guys change. Because, you know, at the end of the day, everyone has capacity for change, right? And she had to resign pretty soon because she was so shocked and gobsmacked at the way these, these men, and I, I say men because it was just a group for men only, um, about how these men were egging each other on. They were, they were talking about how they knew exactly what they were doing. That when they started, when they, they were like, I've learned that this person, my partner, 
loves this, this, and this, and this. I'm going to become that. I'm going to be everything she wants me to be. And I'm going to make her feel like the most desirable, wonderful, special human on earth. And this is what Hannah was talking about as well. And then they start, they pick and calculate when to start with the abuse, starting with isolation, getting the friends to turn on them and getting them to turn on their friends and then with family. And that that's when that very frequent comment, I hear this all the time, do not tell your parents or your family about me or our relationship. Yeah. That is a huge red flag for me because we need to be able to talk to our families and our parents about our relationships. So once we've got them isolated, then we start nitpicking, they started nitpicking on their appearance. You know, if they've gained any weight or things that they actually felt really proud of. So if they were a good cook, for example, they'd start picking on their cooking. Um, or if they were really skilled at, you know, music or they loved to sing. If they just loved singing, they'd start going, don't sing, you can't sing. And, you know, those little snide comments just to dwindle down that self-esteem. And then it would start escalating again to the verbal abuse, the more aggressive side of things. And sometimes, not all the time, it comes into that psychological abuse and that physical abuse. So with the psychological abuse could be, for example, um, I know someone who suspected that her husband was cheating on her and he was messaging her and she was very transparent and just said, look, I'm really uncomfortable about this relationship, like about your friendship with this other girl. Can I just read these messages to be able to clear, like clear the air, get it, get it out of my system so I know everything's fine. And he deleted the messages right in front of her. And then when she's like, well, why did you do that? He's like, what do you mean? She's like, I saw you delete those messages. He's like, are you okay? I'm, I'm really starting to worry about your mental health. I think you're seeing things. And it's that gaslighting, that making this person question their own sanity. Like, oh, hang on a second. Did I see him do that? Am I going crazy? Am I seeing things? Like, I, I could swear that I saw that. Those kinds of, that psychological abuse can be extremely detrimental. And it changes the way you process information for the rest of your life. One of the other things I absolutely loved about what Hannah was saying, and I actually took this upon myself and went just, wow, because I wasn't even in that headspace, was how she was at the end of the episode, how she was talking about not wanting to punish or to forgive, just forgive him and just let it go because she doesn't hate him. She doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. She doesn't want him to be punished. She just, she's just accepted her reality, accepted what her reality was and what it is now. And she wishes, you know, have the best life. I, I really, really loved that for her. That was so empowering and it would be so profound. I also want to clarify as well, if you don't get to that, that stage where you feel that way about the person that abused you, that is also okay. You don't have to. I'm not saying that that was the right way or the only way to go about it or to deal with it. You, you do you, you, you feel what works for you and you are valid in your emotions, whether that be hatred and anger. So Jacinta discusses the complex dynamics of manipulation, coercion and consent. 
She gives us insights into the misconception that sexual coercion is clear-cut, but it's far more nuanced than that. We talked about the subtlety of pressure and how coercion can slide into our lives through the subtlest of pressures. A partner lamenting over a lack of intimacy, maybe under the guise of humour or concern, and often in front of others. It shifts the narrative from mutual pleasure to obligation and duty, and it erodes the joy of intimacy, turning it into a chore. We cover the misunderstood concept of consent and how the conversations need to go deeper than the simplistic yes or no. Consent should be enthusiastic, unmistakable and mutual. It's about navigating these waters with respect and understanding, not just for ourselves, but also for our partners. Sexual coercion, is that something that you're seeing a lot of lately? A lot. One of the most common things that I see in um, in this kind of dynamic because it's not when when you think of sexual assaults or any kind of sexual abuse you think of it as being forced you are forced to do this and it is so much more complex than that the thing is as well as a victim of sexual assault it doesn't matter how extreme it is it, it can be very obviously to anyone else that this was completely forced it was absolutely right when you are an actual victim of sexual assault big or small you question it you question yourself you question what could have been done differently very rarely does a victim start questioning about well hang on a second what 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 about when I said no what about when I I wasn't enthusiastic I didn't want it I made it quite obvious that I didn't want it or you know, when, what about all of the bruises that are all over me from being assaulted? It, it is very, very rare that a victim of sexual assault will actually be able to process that they have been sexually assaulted no matter how extreme the assault was. So when it comes to sexual coercion, that's a whole other level of not being able to believe it, not being able to understand it and questioning it. So it happens constantly. The subtle pressures, we haven't had sex in a week. I'm feeling really, really frustrated and uncomfortable. You're giving me blue balls. Talking to friends. Is everything all right with this person? Because, or like my partner, because we haven't had sex in a while making the friends start questioning. That's a really good point because I hadn't really thought about those sorts of interactions. Like I'm thinking now that there's definitely times when I've been out with friends, the husband and wife and partners are there and you'll hear one of them say something like, oh, we just never have sex anymore. And a lot of us just like either withdraw from that conversation or kind of delve into it trying to be a relationship counsellor which is inappropriate now I'm thinking about those types of scenarios it is it does make sense that it be a form of sexual coercion and it's so public and it's so overt it is it's public it is uncomfortable and it's not okay and you know I, I was much the same before I did my degree I was much the same of if someone was talking to me about you know relationship problems I would try and fit that role of relationships counsel because I, 
I love these people and I want them to be happy and, and that and it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. But when you don't have that that expert knowledge or that professional knowledge. Or the context of the relationship. Or the context of the relationship, it's it can be really problematic. And if you are close with these people, then you shouldn't be giving them any kind of advice. The sexual coercion and the way that it is brought up in conversations in friendship groups sometimes and I know some mothers of the husband will often pull aside their daughter-in-law and just question them about their sex life and and say things like you need to make sure that you're keeping up your sex game because they might stray they might leave you there is there's so many different ways that that could or sometimes the mother-in-law just has this need to try and connect and that's the way that they try and connect as well but that it, it starts creating this narrative of you must be a sexual wife you must be willing to have sex when he when he needs it when he asks it never mind your own pleasure never mind when you want it and a lot of the time, women love sex. I love sex. I'm sure you love sex. We do. But we stop loving sex when it starts becoming a chore, when it starts being less about us and more about them and their needs. And they're, they're men. Men need sex. It's like, and so we need sex just as much as you. So why are you making that? Why are you creating this barrier for me to actually want to have sex with you? And the tantrum can be a look. It can be like a, okay, I'm just fine. Yeah. And it's that, it, exerting that, that guilt trip that you're, you're not giving me what I need. I'm the victim. I'm the victim because you won't fuck me, you know, for the third time today. Yeah. And it's, it, it is, that is sexual coercion. That is sexual abuse. And it's so important that women especially know that. But there does need to be a lot more information about what consent means and it needs to stop take away from the yes and no i'm sorry but yes and like you you can say yes and still mean no and it needs to be enthusiasm it needs to be if and this is what i tell will tell my son he's still a little bit too young this is what i will tell my son is that unless it is an enthusiastic yes, unless you can tell within your body, in your mind, and with your communication that this is absolutely what she wants, then it's a no, and maybe a conversation needs to happen. Yes. But there is ways that you can do it without making it about sex. Consent doesn't have to be a subject that is solely about sex. And like, I saw a thing about um, tickling, tickling your kids. And when you tickle your kids and they go, stop, 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 no, 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 no. You stop automatically. And if they're like, oh, but keep going, keep going, because they love it. It's like, I stopped because you told me to stop and you said no. Those are strong words. Those words are powerful. If you're going to tell me to stop, I'm going to stop. Now, if you want me to tickle you, I can keep tickling you, but you need to let me know that that's what you want. There are so many different things that you can do to start training that mind around consent with you know with all genders 
because it doesn't it doesn't really matter at the end of the day what gender you are consent is so important there's so many different ways that you can bring it into you know into everyday conversation without making it about sex the sexual coercion eroded hannah's relationship and she said it herself it was because of this that she couldn't do it anymore Jacinta describes some of what she sees in her everyday counselling, and I wanted to share with you the results of a study that was published by the National Centre for Biotechnology Information. The study found that effects of sexual coercion in their adult samples was associated with sexual difficulties, negative sexual self-perceptions, low sexual desire, and low satisfaction. The victims of abuse have lower self-esteem and often feel unloved and unworthy of love. So I can't stress this enough. If you're feeling pressured or even forced into doing something sexual that you are uncomfortable with, that's coercion. And it involves an unwanted sexual activity arising from pressure, trickery, threats, or other non-physical forms of force. If someone uses alcohol or drugs to sway your decision, if you're being guilt-tripped, humiliated, or they're constantly pleading to wear you down, if you're hearing the ultimatums about ending the relationship or finding someone else for them to have sex with because you won't. If they're insulting your sexual performance to manipulate you and withholding affection or reneging on promises unless you have sex. If you're being questioned, is there somebody else that you're sleeping with? Or if you're hearing the most common phrase, are you not attracted to me anymore? Remember, coercion is about turning a no into a yes through pressure, and it's not acceptable, regardless of the relationship dynamic. It's okay to restate your boundaries or change your mind mid-course. It's your body and your choice. You have the right to redefine your boundaries at any point. If you're worried about how to navigate this type of dynamic, please seek some support. Please communicate your boundaries. Talk to your partner about what you are comfortable with and call it out when you think that you're being manipulated. Now we're going to head back over to Jacinta. Then we'll hear from Amber and Desley to discuss another pillar of downfall in Hannah's tale, the financial control. And look, so we, there's a couple of things to unpack. So we've got the financial abuse, the sexual coercion, and um, also the victim behaviour, the maladaptive behaviours that are created out of trauma. So going back to the financial abuse, that is probably one of the most common forms of abuse that I have um, experienced within my work. Um, it is a really interesting subject because what can be considered financially abusive can also not be, if that makes sense. It, it really comes down to intention. What why are we trying to take control of this money situation? So, for example, and I want to um, disclaim that I do not, I do not believe that Hannah was financially abusive in her relationship by any means. However, and that's just because of the intention. But in some situations, financial abuse could be considered as getting a credit card hiding it from your partner, spending all of your money, and then having the partner having to pick up the, the, you know, where the consequences of that. 
that can be considered one form of financial abuse. And I've seen it a lot with people who have got um, an unhealthy relationship with gambling. But in Hannah's situation, hers was a maladaptive behaviour, which was trying to take something power back. She, she was disempowered. She had no choice of where her money was going, what she was spending. She was working. She was a stay-at-home mum. So when you are a stay-at-home mum, that is your job. You, have, you are in charge of maintaining the household, taking care of the children, doing the groceries, running all of the errands, overseeing everything. The only difference is she wasn't getting paid for her job. He was getting paid for his job. In that kind of relationship dynamic, it is fundamental that the money is spread evenly. Bills are paid first, make sure that all, all of that is out of the way, and then what's left over is split in between two. Just because she's not getting paid does not mean that she is not contributing, does not mean that she is not worthy or able to be able to spend money effectively. What he did with that, that financial control and making sure that she wasn't getting any money, that cornered her. It's like, put, like you know, putting a dog in a corner, feeding a dog and then expecting it not to bite you. It cornered her. It made her feel so vulnerable, so useless, so worthless that she had to do something extreme to just try and feel some sense of power, some sense of ability to be able to, because it's, it's called learned helplessness. When you treat someone like they are incapable of doing something for a significant amount of time, that person starts to act like they are incapable of doing it and then subsequently will become incapable of doing it. He pretty much forced her into that situation and then blamed her because she responded in the only way that she knew how in that time. Jacinta talked about the behavioural effects of financial abuse in a relationship, but I'm going to head over to Desley now because we were able to chat a little bit more about a byproduct of financial abuse, which is the challenges faced during a separation when you're not fully aware of your financial situation. Desley makes a valid point that it can be a real challenge not knowing key financial details, like where your bank accounts are, who manages them, or how to access them when you're separating. And this lack of knowledge can create significant hurdles during a separation, making an already difficult process even more daunting. This real theme around coercive control. Yeah. In Hannah's episode in particular, that was really very prominent around her yeah. financial side of things. Yeah. Yeah, she did well to get out of that for example at the start yeah you're like oh maybe it's because it's a new relationship or because we've both come from bad relationships in the past like you give them the benefit of the doubt that things are going to be fine um you know with financial things as well you're like it's cool I'm sure he'll look after me but you don't realize until it's gone on for a little while like I'd say that's the starting point of the control and then you get to the point where you're like Maybe I don't have as much freedom as I thought or I've actually got to have this conversation with the person and then you normalise it. People always normalise it and they don't really realise how bad it is until they're in too deep. Yeah. Is so, it something yeah. you see quite often? All the time. Like almost, I think 
almost all the time. Like I think we're coming off the back of, I guess, those really traditionalist values potentially. And society has changed so much now where we both have, like both parents have to pitch in or both people in the relationship have to pitch in to make things work financially or with children. But there's still an expectation that I guess the wife stays home or even we put those expectations on ourselves which is where it all stems from. And I think not having those conversations early in the relationship is probably the cause. So with Hannah's situation, what you touched on there about having those conversations early would be prudent, but obviously that didn't happen. And potentially she didn't really communicate well with him when she was in those situations. So I think if you have concerns, you're maybe in a coercive control relationship or you have concerns about the other party's behaviour and you're not confident in having the hard conversation, my biggest belief is that you should speak with the life coach, a counsellor or a relationship coach or practitioner of some sort. They can give you the skills to have that conversation and they can also help you identify the early warning signs potentially. From your point of view, probably see it also runs shares in the fair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they go right along. How do you find those sorts of conversations? Because you would, I imagine, represent both sides. Yeah. So I get to represent both sides, and DV is not something just that only affects women. It goes both ways. I've seen some quite bad cases um, where women have been the perpetrators. Um, but. Even then, my first advice is please go and see, get some emotional support wherever it is or whatever the issue may be, even if there isn't necessarily a really intense issue of control or domestic violence in another way, shape or form. But going through that process is incredibly challenging. Even an amicable breakup, it's a lot. Um, you've spent potentially years or decades even joining everything and building together so it's never going to be easy to unpack that and if we've got red flags at the start you need to be equipped for those red flags to turn into complete fires that are going to tank things because when people get emotionally inflamed it's nine times out of ten in my experience it will get worse so the best cure is prevention yeah. In a, in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in anything. It's not just good sex advice. In Hannah's episode, Her New Partner, it was actually the one that ended up educating Hannah yeah. what she was entitled to actually try and claim for. Yeah. And she was like, well, we're four years on. So, yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's not something that I knew back then. But yeah. So now it's four years on. So it's yeah. kind of like, well, where does she or people in that circumstance go? There's not much left to do when you're four years on, which is also why I encourage people to get advice early. Even if you are not at the point of actually separating, like maybe you are just having some very heated fights. I often say like, get advice from, see a lawyer then, know your rights, or at least Google it, please Google it, something. Um, because you do have very strict timeframes and depending on whether you're in a relationship, married or divorced, they change. So generally you want to be getting it done within 12 months or starting that process. If you can see a lawyer before the separation actually occurs, we can equip you with strategies to maybe resolve that without a lawyer, but at least you can get advice as well on what you may be entitled to and how to protect assets while you're potentially going through a really 
heavy, not so great breakup. Yeah. How is that for when you don't really know what's ha- what you don't know what assets you might have if he yeah. or she has been the one that's controlled all the financial side of things? So in circumstances where you're unaware of the assets, it can become incredibly difficult not to get a lawyer involved. If you don't have control of the assets and you don't want to take the legal route, the first step is to ask the other person. The second step is to contact the providers who you think may be holding those assets. The third step is potentially to do some searches, but you would probably need a lawyer to do those searches. And that would more be for things like if you have a car which is on a loan or a house. It wouldn't reveal bank accounts. Generally, the only way to reveal bank accounts is if your name is on them, you will have access. If your name is not on them, you won't know and then you'll need a lawyer to get a subpoena potentially if the other party isn't forthcoming. That's because there is a legal process which all relationships should follow in separating property called disclosure where both parties disclose all of the assets, financial resources and liabilities that each party owns or has access to or an interest in. To round out the financial control section here, we're going to hear from Amber on her unique perspective of financial control and how there's naturally one person who takes the lead in a relationship financially. And if you're not that person, what effect that can have when you decide to leave. Amber brings a different point of view to this. She shares not only her own experience with planning during her separation, but also discusses the broader implications of financial engagement. Amber delves into some eye-opening statistics that highlight the difference in how men and women rebuild their lives post-separation. And the data suggests that women often face a longer and more challenging road to financial recovery. With Hannah's episode, she wasn't really receiving any income other than what the Centrelink payments would have been as well. Do you see that often? Is that something quite common in what you see? Definitely comes back to their involvement in the financial situation. So were they aware of the assets of the relationship, Um, particularly where you have got one individual who is making the decisions, are they creating accounts, be it an investment or a bank account that the other person may not be aware of because they're less engaged. Not that it was in any way deliberate or sneaky, they're not trying to carve out assets, but just simply this, the other person just wasn't as engaged with their finances and therefore may not have necessarily been aware of it. So there may be instances where yeah, they're, they're not getting their fair share because they just didn't know to ask for it. Or misunderstandings, as I've seen that as well, where someone has said, I want half the super, I want this, I want that, because they feel, they, they think that the super, for example, is going to be this lump sum that the cash that they'll get. They don't understand that the super goes from one super account to the other and it's still locked away. And when you're in your 30s, you're not thinking 30 years from now. So they might be looking at the quick wins, whereas the the big fish, and depending on how long and and what sort of income that they've had, that that could be substantial. So they're looking at that going, well, yeah, I want a piece of that. Um, So it's about, yeah, knowing what, knowing what assets are there um, and and what they, yeah, it's it's the low-hanging fruit, I think, isn't it? From your perspective, do you think it would have been beneficial to have discussed 
a little bit of both, like talk about super, so you've got something for a little bit long term, and then looking at things short term as well. Like what's the best way, I suppose, to balance that? Because often you'll find I just need to get out, like I need to get a property, I need a bond if I'm going to rent. Mm. You know, a lot of people will think short term. Definitely, and, and they do, and that could have longer-term consequences, particularly if they have been the primary caregiver of the children, they haven't been working, that's really common. Um, there's quite a number of women in relationships that have only worked part-time or they've not worked for a, a reasonable period of time. So their earning capacity is a lot lower and absolutely they're not thinking longer term they're not thinking 20 years from now 30 years from now what their retirement is going to look like they are very much focused on that immediate need and that that is hugely important to think about that immediate need where am I going to live how am I going to pay for it I can completely understand why those decisions override everything else but it's important to still have this mindfulness that there is a later they will recover they may or may not meet someone else But importantly, you don't want to be putting yourself in a position where you have to rely on someone else. You want to always be able to stand on your own two feet. So you'll thank yourself later if you do look at the total picture now and have a little bit for now and a little bit for later and you'll position yourself better. You'll never need to rely on someone else financially again. And that's so important because people shouldn't be going into a relationship because they need a second income. My experience, I've been separated, let's say 12 years, or divorced, yeah, separated, divorced, 12 years. My ex-husband at the time earned, I wanna say more than three times, my income at the time, it's huge income disparity because his career was more important. Uh, I would still try and plug away at mine, but he was a breadwinner. And that's that's really common. So for me, it was like, I'm not happy. I haven't been happy for a long time. And I think I sort of thought it was normal. It's not. (laughs) But you don't obviously know that until you're out looking in. But I had those same thoughts. I'll call Centrelink. I've never claimed Centrelink before. So what am I entitled to, if anything? I was hugely surprised. I was actually financially square. When I took his income out of the picture, that meant suddenly I got childcare benefits that I didn't get as a couple, but I got as an individual. I was able to get a temporary single parent payment, a bit of family tax benefit. Then of course there's the magic child support. So when I took his income out, but then plugged in all these extra little things and looked at, actually I'm the same. When I look at what I get paid per fortnight, less childcare, less all these things, I'm exactly the same. And that was hugely empowering. And it took that first phone call to realize what what will my world look like? So aside from all the assets, cash flow is my first thing. Where's that gonna come from? I didn't think about his income potential relative to mine after the fact. So we split half the asset, half the debt. And at the time that was really amicable and agreeable. 
I chose not to go after a super. Our supers weren't too different at the time. I, I don't think remember, remember thinking there was this huge disparity. We were we were 30, so we'd only been working 10 years. So there wasn't a lot to fight over. It wasn't wasn't worth it. Hindsight, hindsight, I think, yeah, I probably should have got more advice because fast forward 10 years and he's been earning considerably more than me that entire time. He was able to buy a house quicker than me. He was able to do a few things probably as much as five years before I did. Um, just because he was able to find his feet a lot quicker, I had a much lower base to build from. In the year immediately after divorce, women's incomes declined. Generally, men's stayed the same after adjusting for changes in household size. Women's income does recover over time compared to the incomes of non-divorced women, but they're still behind. So if you're feeling it um, later in life. Four years post-divorce, women experienced a 2.9% increase in income from their pre-divorce levels compared to an increase of 12.3% for non-divorced women. So it's more than 10% difference between divorced and non-divorced. And that's, I think, in part to do with that, that step back and that rebuilding. And it's a, a pause, if you like. Um, divorced men increase, income increase by about 12.5%. So while there is that recovery, you do find that men will bounce back quicker Women are more likely to be the primary carer. They're more likely to have those roadblocks. Where am I going to live? How am I going to work? Do I need to go back to work? Do I need to increase my hours? Whereas men can continue, if they're assuming they're not the primary carer, can continue on the same trajectory. Men are also more aggressive in their career progression. Women tend to be more organic. So we get comfortable in a role. And we put up with things that maybe we could be more assertive about. So we'll end up having five years and seven years and some longevity in our career choices. We're not really thinking, I need to make some short, sharp moves to improve. I asked Amber to send me a voice memo for advice and information for some practical steps for anyone who's navigating those first couple of months of a financial separation. In the wake of a separation, Amber, the seasoned financial advisor that she is, prompts those people going through a separation to extend their vision past the initial upheaval. She advises on the significance of exploring every potential income source, underscoring entitlements that could have been overlooked. And she emphasises that child support isn't static. It evolves as the child grows with rates potentially changing during teenage years. Amber is aware of cases where ex-partners may have manipulated their income to lower the child support payments and suggests a special circumstance reason eight as recourse for a fairer assessment. Following a separation, we often look at the immediate next steps, the next week, the next month, maybe the next 12 months. When planning your exit strategy, considering your income avenues is really important as you may be entitled to more than you think. One of the first things you should do is call Centrelink. Make inquiries about family tax benefit, childcare subsidies and single parenting payments. Often you'll be paid a maximum rate for a transitional period, providing you with a much needed cash boost in the first few months. 
The next thing to consider is child support. It's a complicated system and does often feel unfair for both parties. The intent of the current formula is to provide a financial baseline for your children so that their current standing standard of living remains similar to what it would have been had the relationship continued. In order to maintain your ongoing Centrelink entitlements, you will be required to contact the Child Support Agency to determine your entitlements based on your personal circumstances. Your income and that of your former partner is taken into consideration. This is generally your taxable income. However, some pre-tax deductions are added back to create what's known as the adjusted taxable income. This can be higher than your taxable income and is designed to add back possible intentional deductions to lower income for the receiving parent. Some people are lucky to have had a, a really amicable separation and may not want to register with the agency. However, Centrelink will require this in order to continue to provide benefits, so it is worth touching base. Having an assessment also doesn't mean it has to be enforced. Families can choose to have a private arrangement whereby money is exchanged based on an agreed amount and paid directly to the other parent. I do think it's important though to at least understand your entitlement to make sure you're being paid the right amount. Something else that's important to remember is that child support changes over time. When your child is young, the rate is lower than when they become a teenager and expenses are likely to increase. You may have an ex-partner who's possibly self-employed or choosing to work in a lesser paying occupation to potentially avoid or reduce their child support obligations. Sadly, this can be common, but there are some things you can do. You can lodge a request for an assessment under special circumstances reason eight, which is the child support assessment is unfair because of the income, earning capacity, property or financial resources of one or both parents. If you can demonstrate the former earnings of the other parent, you may be able to have this level of income used in your assessment, which could ensure you're receiving the right level of payments. Child support also has an end date. This is particularly important to consider where you're reliant on the income to support your current lifestyle. Longer term planning is just as important as your shorter term planning. I've worked with a few clients recently where the ex-partner was on a very high income. This means the contributions made could almost be considered a full-time wage for some. The trap with this situation is not planning for that end date when the child turns 18. This could happen over a number of years and as each child comes of age and provides a step down over a few years. How you use that money, particularly in the last five years of receiving it, may provide you with more of a cushion on the way down as your income reduces, but your teenager is still financially dependent on you. If possible, I'd recommend setting some aside to help with those later years. One of the interesting things that she talked about that her child support is so minimal. Yeah. And by all accounts, it sounds as if he's self-employed. Yeah. There's always these posts as well. Yeah. People that are saying, you know, I'm not receiving the entitlements that I need. Child support services aren't helping. Or... Yeah. Do you see that a lot in your... I see that so much. The difficulty is, I guess... It all comes down to their tax return, really. If they're not declaring the income and it's not going through their bank accounts, child support agency don't have a lot they can do about it. There's not a whole lot more we can do to control a person's behavior and getting them to file their tax return. 
or to declare income if they're accepting cash and not declaring it. How do we deal with that? Um, I think may become more of a problem as we become more of a cashless society as cash gets phased out. But I also think there's only so far that a person can go with not declaring their income, particularly if they want to build a business or get a mortgage. Another point is though to monitor their income or their lifestyle. So there'll be indicators, potentially if they're in a new relationship or they repartner, they might be trying to grow their income to obtain finance. Um, uh, or they might be sharing expenses, in which case it may be a conversation, a matter of calling up child support agency and going, look, there's been a change in circumstances. Can we reassess their income? Um, child support agency aren't the most proactive so it's up to you to really be on the front foot in calling them and advising them of changes in circumstances and pushing them to investigate and from what I understand that then sort of opens up both sides of it really they'll reassess it but they're not just going to reassess his or her part they'll reassess yours and theirs holistically correct yeah which would be interesting yeah, <laughs> it can it can really open up a can of worms, which again I think is why I feel so strongly about people getting advice early. Maybe we can work out a private agreement so it's not related to their income. And then sometimes with a private income, you can diffuse the whole she's taking half, he's taking half, or she doesn't deserve this by changing the way that expenses are paid. Child support as a term itself sounds really straightforward, yet it isn't. When the payments disappear into the abyss, the impact is profound. Hannah talked about how difficult it was navigating emotionally with her daughters, let alone trying to navigate the childcare arrangements and the payments with her ex. Each bill, each unexpected expense is a stone added to an already heavy load. And in the life of a single parent, those stones can pile up really fast, threatening to topple even the most carefully balanced of budgets. Rent, utilities, groceries, all the basics are on the rise, yet incomes often struggle to keep pace. For single mums and dads, it's not just about managing these costs, it's about shouldering them alone. And it's about making tough choices, deciding which essentials are more essential. But let's not paint a picture of gloom. Yes, there are challenges, and the challenges are real, and they are tough. But single parents are some of the most resourceful, resilient individuals that you'll ever meet. They've mastered stretching pennies into pounds, finding ways to make life work, even when the numbers say that it shouldn't. Now let's pivot to another aspect that's often intertwined with child support, the struggles of co-parenting. Navigating the dynamics of raising children together while being apart can be a complex and emotionally charged journey, and both Desley and Jacinta have some helpful points to consider when you're facing separation with children involved. That people can do better when navigating it with children. The best thing parents can do is try their best to keep the children out of it. I know that is almost impossible, especially if you have um, one parent who is telling the children things which are their opinion and not necessarily true. 
My advice in those situations is just remain child focused. If you focus on what your child needs rather than battling the other person or separating everything, your child will come out of this fine. You will recover from this fine. But when we start focusing on he's doing that to get the child or she's doing this with the child, rather than looking at it from a perspective of what does the child need right now? Are all of their other needs being met? You'll end up in a much better position than by focusing on the fight with the other person. Hannah talked about how her ex-husband would vilify her to the children and they ended up viewing her as the villain of the story. And I found that really interesting because it's one of those situations that isn't often talked about, but it is so common. And it's a lot more common for the person who is trying everything they possibly can to make things work and to do the right thing to be vilified. Um, so what she was talking about was um, that you've got to let go of this idea of being the hero. And I loved that. I, I was really, really moved when she said that because it is incredibly difficult. You want your children to love you. You want your children to choose you. And that's not being narcissistic, that's just human nature. You, you want to be loved and you want your children to see you for who you are and to see you for everything that you do for them. And even though we keep things age appropriate with our kids, we do unconsciously want them to still see and know that we will do anything for them. So letting go of the idea of being the hero is really difficult, but it is also quite fundamental when you leave the, the relationship. One thing that you will notice is if you continue to be consistent, if you continue to just tell your children that you love them, that you believe them, that, that you will love them unconditionally, these are the things that they will start to learn. And it takes time. It takes that consistency. It takes that persistence. But if you just continue to do that, whilst simultaneously never bad-mouthing the other parent, you may want to, and they could be the most horrible human being on planet Earth, but children will see themselves as parts of both of their parents. So when you bad-mouth the other parent, you are actually making them ch those children feel like you are bad-mouthing them. You are saying these things about them. They take it upon themselves and that becomes their inner voice about the way they view themselves. Never, ever bad-mouth the other parent. Always talk positively about the other parent. If, the other, if they come to you and tell you that the other parent has done something or said something that's hurt them, validate their feelings and emotions. I can see that really hurt you. I can see that you are in a lot of pain. How do you want to approach this? What do you think you could say to the other parent so that they could understand how you might be feeling about this situation? Just making it about them and empowering them to be able to identify their emotions and have those emotions validated and believed, but you don't need to turn around and say, you know, oh my gosh, your dad's an asshole.
how could he do that to you? What a piece of shit. You don't need to do that to help your child. Never. And it doesn't matter how old they get either. If you want to be the parent who is their safe parent, if you want to be the parent that they come to when they do mature and need someone, you have to be the parent that is safe. You have to be the parent who is consistent and who does validate their feelings and emotions. Where this episode, we heavily focused on aspects that were specific to Hannah's tale, our next is going to include topics that are just a little bit more peripheral, that Hannah's tale somewhat introduced us to. Looking ahead at our next episode, we're going to talk to the latest legislation surrounding coercive control and some real considerations when you're contemplating leaving a controlling relationship. So I've reached the end of the episode and again, I'm going to be asking for your help. Um, In order for us to keep this podcast alive, please consider sharing this with family and friends, anyone that you think might find it helpful. And depending on where you're listening to this from, please rate and review the podcast. It really does help. It's a simple gesture, but it's one that carries a lot of potential. I'm so chuffed that you've listened until the end of the episode. Um, Thanks again for listening. I am endeavouring to release a new tale monthly and post-mortem episodes to follow each tale. If you have your own or you'd like to reach out to us, please head over to splittales.com.au. There is a contact page where you can leave us a message or submit your own tale for a blog or potentially a podcast episode. Know that we do publish under a pseudonym to protect the privacy of individuals. So until next time, thanks again. Bye.